And I'm super excited because now when I summon Craigbot, it shows up as a picture of a, a bear with a microphone. Alrighty, everyone. Oh, for you, maybe it has been. For me, this is new. It was always textual. Now it's picturesque. Good time to be alive. Yeah, I'm sure I do. Anyways, welcome everyone to our first roundtable in the literature discussion and the quarantine literature group. This is going to be a little bit different than our normal talks where we haven't actually uh, prepared to read a text today. Uh, rather, we're going to be discussing the texts we've read um, in conjunction with one another. We might focus on a specific text for a while. We might dance around. Um, so this will be a little bit uh, more loose in that sense. And so with that, I think that's just about everything I need to say here. Um, I'd like to open up the floor and, and just get right into it. Um, is there any place anybody wants to start in regards to a text we've read or a theme within that text or some sort of larger pattern you've noticed within the text? So then I guess I'll kick it off. Um, one thing we I, I've tried to focus on in picking these tests, uh, and as we move into a more, uh, a different way. Of, oh, no, we didn't. Alyosha, do you want to try again? It sounds like your mic is um, malfunctioning. Um, if you just spoke again, we did not hear you. Okay, technical difficulties while well, Alyosha is figuring that out. Um, we'll keep rolling. So one thing that um, I've had on my mind picking these tests is the role of language um, in conjunction with communication. So uh, how do we do things with language? And specifically, what are we doing when we write tests, when we tell stories, when we write poetry? And when we use um, language or an alphabet, um, like in Borges, where we talked a little bit more about like the Aleph is both a letter and a sacred letter, uh, something that kind of, even though it, it has that, uh, that usual uh, linguistic marking, even though it's a lexicon, um, this way that it kind of transcends all that is something else. And so that's one place I want to focus on in our texts is um, the the role of writing, the role of speaking, uh, and what we're doing with language in these texts. Anyone have any thoughts on language, writing, or anything we've seen in these texts? Uh, 
I think that reminds me of what we were reading in Blanchot also um, uh, with regards to what a story is, what a narrative is, what what communication is, how we uh, uh, what what uh, I mean, sort of questioning the ideas of what a structure is or. Uh, uh, how how and also a lot of times I think that relates to uh, discussions on reason, which come up in Blanchot also, in Kafka also, Nato also, a lot of times. Yeah, that's a good connection, especially with um, the way Blanchot talks about. I think we talked about how. Um, the story in Blanchot's Madness of the Day has this, um, it almost gets appropriated for like a factual basis, right? We talked about, um, I think it was the, I think it was your, your idea there, not there, where we said there was the representative of perception, the, or even like the authoritative perception, the authoritative scientist, and I think the authoritative psychologist, all trying to pick out facts in Blanchot's story. And the, uh, the narrator's story not really lending itself to that and there, there being something completely different going on in it that um, couldn't be captured. In the same way, I think we talked about uh, Artaud in the, this way that there's this sort of like diagrammatic um, sort of, I don't want to call it a representation because I don't want to get too into the Deleuzian term. But um, there's sort of this this diagram wherein things are supposed to fit and line up, and there's supposed to be a symmetry, right? Artaud's, one of his main points in to have done with the judgment of God is that that's not, um, that's not his experience, right? That's not the way uh, living in a body or being a body or being a person um there's this huge disjunction between the diagram and the the actual like lived experience, the actual um, body itself. Yeah, um, I think Aaron is saying something interesting in the chat. He's um, saying Guitari talks about this in the I don't know machinex machinic unconscious um he's he I, i'm trying to understand what does he mean when he says it makes sense from lang what is lang here i'll leave it to uh varun varun do you want to hop on and tell us more about um uh the connection with lottery uh, I mean, I was, I was going off task a bit. I don't think it relates, but I mean, what, 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 what they're building on is what um, what they wrote in the Plateau of Linguistics, where they take influence from J.L. Austin's uh, How to Do Things with Words. I mean, Derrida also took a lot of influence from the, that book for deconstruction, but essentially, I mean, the fact that language is a shared system, it mean, I mean, you know, words get their meaning from the fact that they're shared. If everything is shared, that means, you know, your own thoughts are almost the subject. I mean, in, in, the, in the broadest sense, right, in the most simplified way, uh, whenever you enter a language or whenever you uh, start signifying something, it, it's, 
your thoughts get court sort of construed and you no longer you know you're no longer an individual subjectivity it's sort of connected to now a group subjectivity Yeah, that's interesting. It's also, um, I think what's uh, really interesting about the, uh, the people that we've been reading is, or at least that could be me oversimplifying it uh, or reading too much into much commonality in them. But uh, yeah, I also see a kind of resistance towards uh, established notions uh, that come from reason or that come from um, enlightenment somewhat. Uh, to uh, sort of um, bring to uh, folk, bring in, bring into focus um, all of these aspects of the being of the human that had been uh, exiled into the irrational uh, previously. So, uh, talking about the body in a lot of places, talking about playing, um, talking about the incoherence uh, or, or the incoherence that language seems to take when we uh, necessarily uh, limit it with orders of reason, or even um, talking talking about language or, or the being outside of its collective system, as Varun is saying. I think that's uh, one commonality that I've been reading through all of these texts, uh, whether it be in Kafka, uh, with, uh, with respect to uh, law or with respect to uh, morality, uh, or whether it be uh, Artaud uh, with respect to the body, uh, or in in uh, Blanchot with respect to um, uh, ex experience, uh, the, ex the the experience of living that's 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 fragmented and not necessarily does not necessarily fall into a rational uh, order of things. I think that's uh, something that's been these texts. Very excellent insight. Um, what do you guys think of what they're not there? So have you have you seen this kind of pattern about um, rationality and the way it connects with us? Is um, right. So she she said as being human, but she also point, um, mentioned law, uh, morality, and some other aspects such as the body. Uh, what do you guys think of that? I think between the Deleuze and other stuff we've read, um, I mean, really lots of different ways of approaching it of like, you know, even for the, whether you want to go a philosophical scientific approach of like the, the act of seeing is actually, you know, a filtered process of, uh, you know, joining our, our eyes, joining multiple images and only seeing certain things that it's able to process. Or if you just go to the, to the level of semiotics or representation, like critiques of representation to me, you know, the problem with thinking, oh, well, there's, uh, you know, pictograms represent something because they appear to is sort of problematic because, I mean, I, you know, I've studied some like Japanese and other languages like that. And it's often a common refrain you hear of people saying, well, you know, unlike our languages, they, they, you can see what the meaning is just by looking at it. And it is true. There's a particular like gambit that those languages have developed that is a different visual play of meaning than what we have. But also, you know, I think it, it ignores the huge amount of play and sort of arbitrariness of, of those symbols as well. Even if you want to go back to like old cave paintings and pictograms of that nature, you know, like if we look at a cave painting of a, a man stick figure chasing a bull, I mean, it's not, I think we would be wrong to say, Oh, this is a documentary image and it's clearly a guy chasing a bull. I mean, there's, there's so many things that that could be. And, 
be referencing and represent. It could be religious. It could be practical. It could be, you know, pure desiring machines, just boredom. So anyway, I'm not trying to derail with this. I think what I'm trying to say is all these authors, from what I can see, are playing with these the idea that uh, language can represent things in different ways. And so with Kafka, it's one way that language describes society and us in particular ways. In Borges, you know, there's this like this, the Aleph is this thing that kind of explodes all all language and understanding of things because it's all simultaneously experienced at once. In Blake, you know, language is just sort of an imperfect, as I see it, way of articulating uh, energies. I can't remember, but um, you know, it's the reason that is the what do you call it, the edge of energy or the, the threshold. Jack, remind us of that word. But, um, yeah. Boundary. Yeah, boundary. Um, so yeah, I think that's what it is for me. I mean, I'm not, I'm not really well read uh, as much as I used to be on my, you know, all my fancy post-structuralist critiques of language and stuff. But I think that's the thing. It reminds me. I pulled up this quote from our Deleuze discussion the other day when they talk about uh, style, and they say that is what style is, or rather, the absence of style absence of style, asyntactic, agrammatical, the moment when language is no longer defined by what it says, even less by what makes it a signifying thing, but, but what, what causes it to move, to flow and to explode desire. For literature is like schizophrenia, a process and not a goal, a production and not an expression. And I think whether we're trying, I, I don't want to cram the rules into our readings like that, but I think it's a productive way of thinking about like, are we, you know, a lot of times we get stuck in that thing of what does it mean? You know, what does the story represent? And there's an aspect of that in every piece of literature, but I think that question of what does it do and what is it doing, how does it function as a, as a thing is kind of a more fruitful grounds. But anyway, sorry for the long ramble. I mean, I definitely agree. Um, there's a quote in Borges that says, all language is a set of symbols whose we among its speakers assumes a shared post, a shared past. And uh, yeah, but I wanted to say that of course there's like not meaning in it if we don't give the word this meaning, but it has it, it can carry this meaning, and uh, there is the be this is the beauty of it, I guess, because it, because we can able to critique it. If there's like wouldn't be a concept of representation, we wouldn't be able to critique it. Like all those things, all the Delos is building on is that we are able to. Uh, Make this representation, but when we look at it, we see something that is not just ramble, but something that can, that is considered in our minds as well. So, um, I was going to go from there. That this is how we can. I mean, we can talk around the story because this is all we can really say in the moment. Like the story does something to us when we read it, but how can we are we are not really able to talk about it. So we talk about those ideas, unfortunately, and then try to capture those ideas, what that story meant to us. I mean, they all meant different things when we read it. And the second time we read it, it will be different again. And I cannot really articulate what I felt at that moment when I read that sentence because this is non-representative and I cannot talk about it. And the desire in me in that moment creates a flaw and I, I feel something, but all I can talk about is that rationality of it. 
Oh, and this is the all we can critique too. Borges quote too, because um, I think he's right to say that when we use a language, it's not like we're using something that was created yesterday, right? Like the English language is rife with a history of development from uh, from Greek uh, languages, from Roman uh, languages, um, and that's and, and then some, right? Um, Right, the the alphabet, the alpha beta, the first two letters of the Greek um, uh, alphabet. <laughs> You've got to know your alpha beta. Um, so I like that you're focusing on the aleph there too, because I think that I think that story challenges what we're talking about in a different way, um, especially in the sense that. Jorge seems to be discussing, too, the, the symbolic aspect of things, but also the way, like Alyosha said, where the Aleph... At, so, like, uh, Begum points out, the Aleph, at one level, is a letter, right? Um, it, it's part of a language, and it functions within that. Um, and it's got, uh, as Alyosha said, it can also be depicted symbolically, right? It's not just a phonetic that we speak, um, it's not just the, the verbal Aleph, but it's also this little icon, in a sense, this sort of symbol. And then from there, right, Borges talks about how, yeah, there's the Aleph like that, but then there's the Aleph in this, this almost more sacred sense where it's all things um, are on its locus, right? The Aleph is the point where all things um, uh, sharing common and that level like the aleph um a lot of the story will talk about whether the aleph is this point in space or if it's not something more sort of um more hidden right if it's if it can really just be this point in space we see and we, we work off of or if it's not this low humming we hear in a um in a deserted uh pillar just when we're silent but I think that gets into the question of what we're talking about, too, where language plays a role in what we say about ourselves. It plays a role in what we tell people, what we um, what we hear from people, and the way we use stories. And even, um, as we said earlier, morality and laws, right? So with all that said, I'm hearing a lot of... Uh, post-structuralist interest in representation. And so one thing that's interesting to think about here is whether it's for Blake or for Borges or some of the others, um, there does appear to be a level at which language can function um, in that representational manner and doesn't function in that representational manner. So let's try this then. Um, so right, we've talked about the there's a sense of language and the a sense of like the rationalization of it. There's a sense of language in a way that we can use words to stand in for things, right? 
um, whether it's the feeling of uh, looking into someone's eyes or it's um, the bush in my yard, the right language allows us to communicate, communicate these things almost like a almost like a piece of Tupperware in that sense. Um, yeah, Freak, if you want to jump in, um, go for it. Does your mic work? Yeah, while well, you're getting that set up. Um, I see also there's this question of how do we engage language so that we can um, communicate in a different way. And I think, Freak, that is um, maybe something you're going to tell us about, or maybe you're going to say something else about uh, language, art, and representation. So go ahead. Can you hear me now? Um, I can. Can you guys hear Freak? Yes. Okay, thank you. Yes. Um, so when it's about art, our focus also about visual arts, about representation and visual arts and such. Within, with audio, it's a lot more immediate um, than visual arts. Like, when you listen to Schoenberg, you respond immediately. You don't think about what you're hearing. Um, most people immediately hate it. But, um, language, thank you. Language is not when you speak or when you hear to listen to people. Oh, hold on. Not uh, going to get the Schubert re uh, records, are you? <laughs> no, I wasn't interrupted by other actually. So, um, when we talk about hold on, so art is okay. I lost my my train train of thought. Uh, you were saying that there's. When you listen to something like Schoenberg, um, you don't necessarily go to the representation. You're you're more impacted by like the experience of it. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I think when you like, I think some research like ninety percent of your your um, sensory input is is from visual or is from your eyes. But actually, the um, audio is a lot more immediate and What's the point that you're making about verbal language, though? I'm not sure. 
Well, let's do with Let's do with meaning and, and representation and in, in art or in, in literature and visual arts. And I think the representation is, 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 is secondary and the meaning is, is immediately processed. I don't know if I agree. I mean, I, I wonder that seems to be very, like, you know, the idea of mean that, well, I guess what I'm saying is I don't think there's any unmediated experience of meaning in any form, you know? So the idea that verbal language, you know, it would be sort of like we're reading, you know, fancy post-structuralists and you, tell, you do all this analysis about where does the subject come from? And then you say, well, just, you know, I walk down the street and I recognize a subject. Therefore, the subject is immediately understandable and has no, you know, it doesn't have a complex basis. I think that the easy response to that would just be, well, you know, just because we are interpolated or born into the world as the product of all these hegemonic processes that then appear to make a kind of common sense doesn't then mean that the process itself isn't happening. We're just, this is, this is the real reality we've learned to kind of exist in. Whether it's verbal language, I mean, there's, in a way, you know, verbal language is even more abstract, requires even more leaps of the mind to actually process. But you're right that we, we, we learn it so intuitively that it appears to be meaningful and obvious. But I, I think if you peel back the layers, it would be just as arbitrary as, as written language. I mean, I don't mean to be a relativist about it. There's clearly differences. But, like, you know, I, I don't know if we it would be fruitful to look for, oh, th this is the more pure form of expression and meaning, and this, this is like a more or lesser form. I, I suppose we have preferences as artists and as you know, consumers of art, but I, I don't know if you could, well, in my opinion, argue that on like a philosophical level. Freak, uh, would you like to respond? I'm uh, still thinking about it. Okay. I was thinking about something uh, uh, with respect to this discussion that you're having. While I do agree to Alyosha in the sense that I don't see, a, and when I'm thinking about language also, I'm not really thinking particularly about um, language in the sense of the spoken word, word only. I'm also uh, looking at uh, art or uh, representation or music as a, a, a sort of linguistic exercises in some ways, uh, because I'm thinking of language as as, as meaning-making uh, and not just uh, what comes to be spoken word. So even when I'm not really saying something, when I encounter anything in the world, I'm still making meaning of it. And that's what I'm thinking of language to be. But having said that, I still do see distinctions in terms of uh, how... Um, written language or written literature as opposed to art or music uh, tend to be different uh, in how we experience them and also how we uh, interpret them. Um, so, I mean, I think especially with, with music, I think uh, uh, there is there is a special relation with regards to time. So it's a distinct relationship. Uh, uh, I don't know what to make of uh, music that now is recorded and uh, replayed, but it, it's, it's, it has a special relationship with time. Uh, and when I look at the written word, it travels over time. And then there is this stratifying tendency to it. And I was thinking about it in terms of how uh, uh, there's a lot of work that's being done in oral histories, in um, 
lot of uh, previously colonized cultures. And what is interesting is that those oral histories uh, work through images, that they work through memories uh, instead of working through the written word. And um, how um, how those, not to say which one uh, works more effectively in in the sense of feeling something, but uh, that the, the, there are these big differences between these many mediums, uh, how memory or an image can hold uh, a complete meaning or a totality of an experience uh, is also quite interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think it's... Um... I think you're right to focus on, like, um, so Alyosha used the word medium, right? But the mediums of language, or that is to say, like, um, the contexts they exist in and also, like, the technologies of language, right? So, like, there's kind of like um, they're not there saying music has a language that accounting doesn't have, right? Um, accounting is supposed to be the language of business. It's a way of talking about um how to recognize cash flow. But music has a different sense of time, a different sense of, of grammar um, altogether, right? A different, um, completely different way of communicating both in the written form and the actual, um, uh, hesitate to use the word spoken, but the, the enunciated form, because I don't think a drum speaks the same way that a voice speaks, but. <laughs> uh, regardless, there is definitely there's definitely a juxtaposing nature between these different means of communicating and these means of trying to order things, right? Um, even in the literary sense, right? We talk about characters and we talk about characters to do an analysis, but um, and I think this is kind of what we're starting to get toward. We also talk about characters as we're reading them and engaging them. Um, be it as an audience or even as an author, right? And in this sense, um, I'm reminded of Blake's uh, dinner with the two prophets where he asked them um, two really important questions, right? Um, among many questions, but one of them being, why did you subject yourself to all these different um, uh, abject experiences, right? Why lay on your side? Why eat dung? Um, why, why go through all these these sort of tortures to yourself? And then the answer he's given is, we wanted to inspire people to perceive the infinite in other things, right? So they could have this transcendental experience like we did, right? And then he, he will also ask them, uh, the narrator will also ask them, would you gift the world the tests that were lost, right? Uh, we talk about this like every everybody's fantasy when they have an author they love. If I could just read the rest of your work and uh, the responses, none of equal value were lost. Um, just a funny way of talking about your drafts as well as your other work. But I think that also speaks to something we're talking about in terms of um, so there is this this temptation to talk about language, the literary, um, and these things we're putting into language, as though they end as, the, as though they begin and end at language, and there's no other connection. But I think, kind of like Blake might be suggesting, um, there's a way this language also 
in, interacts with us and engages with a, a new experience, which is not just the experience of listening, um, it's the experience of having read something, uh, having listened to the piece of music, uh, in, in our case, um, having read several texts. <laughs> so maybe that might be something to take in mind as we're talking about language and we're we're talking about the, the rational aspect of language, or perhaps to get at a slightly different way. Um, we might ask ourselves, why communicate? Uh, why use language? Why use these stories? Why make music um, together and all that, right? Uh, why do we do these things? Or to make it perhaps less abstract, um, if you've ever played in a band or like even in our discussion of these texts, why, right? Or in Borges, um, why why read? Why write? What do you guys think about that? Right. So the question is, since we're we're talking about some of the challenges of interpretation when it comes to communication, since we're talking about some structural um, elements of language, right? Like we talked about, uh, the laws language might even come with a certain um, characterizing and characterized factor or factors in a sense. So um, in, a less, in a more general sense, and I think this is one of the, one of the important questions to ask having read these texts, why tell stories, right? Why tell stories? Why use language? Or what do you guys think about when we're doing these things? That's a big brain question, my friend. <laughs> Let me try and walk it out, right? So Blancho, at the end of the madness of the day, says no more stories. Something like no more stories, no more stories ever again. Right? There's an end to storytelling that's happening. And we might say that in some reason, in some ways, we've learned some things about some um, some elements of why we were using language, why tell stories. And we might also see some new interest in why tell stories now and, and you know, what do we do now? How does language gonna change after no more stories? Um, that all said, that's a little bit different than what we get in Borges, um, in the sense that the left as a locus of all things, or the point that contains all points, is supposed to help, um, I want to say his name was Rinaldo, Carlos. It's supposed to help Carlos, I was way off on that, it's supposed to help Carlos write his, um, his great poem um, that's going to be encyclopedic and encompass everything, kind of like the Aleph contains all points, so too with this poem. And it's contrasted with like the narrator's sort of literary critique of it, right? Where it's almost like Carlos is, he's not really doing anything but trying to fit everything into this poem, right? He's not, um, It's this weird thing where it's almost like instead of like 
Right, so you could take that and you could contrast it with Borges writing his name in the story. There's an element of himself and his experience in the story very directly there. There's also this way that Borges, the character, is not Borges, the author. But anyways, you can see these different things going on with storytelling, with creating something literary, with communicating. Um, and I think that's a common theme throughout these texts is not only how do we use language, but what do we want to do with it and why are we doing that with it? So the question I'm trying to um, get us to think about is to sort of open up this element of how we're using language and um, what it is we want to do with it, right? So we said that we we don't want to be simply representational. I think that's um, at least something I've heard from a couple of you. So what are we trying to do with language? I think um, unless we're considering the possibility of uh, a radical um, sort of Buddhist-like silence, which uh, talks about the abandoning of the intellectual language, uh, I think when when I'm thinking of language, I'm thinking of this is how um, we are existing in the world, which is that everything that we do uh, happens through language. So um, I'm I'm not not so sure if that applies to the Aleph, but um, a lot of uh, in in a lot of uh, Vedanta philosophy, um, they talk about how the word is what brings the world into being, and and through us that the word uh, brings it into being, right? So let's say I think about Kafka's uh, penal colony. I think the use of language is significant in the sense of us making sense of how we're ordering things, how we're imagining punishment, how we're imagining um, uh, societies uh, or, or morality. I think uh, why we indulge in language is, is sort of like a like a like a complex question in the sense that I will have to first then ask myself the possibility of existing without or outside of language in that Wittgensteinian sense that is can can we be even outside language or if we are necessarily linguistic beings and then um, of the content of what we make of language is that it's not just um, it's not just um, when we indulge in art, when we indulge in literature, we're indulging in questions of being, we're indulging in questions of states, orders, legality, morality, uh, what, who we are, and, and and how are we making things. And that making things meaning necessarily involves not just thinking intellectually, but also acting in the world. So that's how I'm thinking of the group. Yeah, I, I think you're right that um, in Kafka we do see this way of ordering morality and ordering um, law and behavior and, and, and perhaps a more general sense trying to order um, trying to order a notion of justice through language, right? Um, and there's this weird way where it's almost like um, so there's one way of thinking about this where it's very analytical and it's like, okay, uh, you know, does the glove fit as the, one of the famous idioms in the U.S., right? Um, there's another aspect that's also very reflective. And in some ways, I think that's kind of what Kafka's machine um, 
in the penal colony in in the penal colony in some ways um sort of in Prince people where where language can serve um as a means of reflection as well as um in another sense it can be a way of trying to analyze things uh, Alyosha, since you're spamming quotes, do you want to um, share your thoughts with us? I'm just sort of, you know, I'm, I'm chewing over what you're saying, and I don't know if I have a great, you know, answer, but I'm just sort of looking to help my, get my mind going on texts that we have read, and, and the anti oedipus in particular, and I'm looking at spots where we've talked about language. It, not, not that I think that has to be the be-all, end-all reference point, it's just the most recent one that is in my mind, so... Yeah, that's fair. Um, it is tough because I'm trying to think of how to pose this in a less in a less generalized, like large sense because um, I feel like it's kind of a difficult question. But sort of what I'm getting at too is this way that, um, and I think Freaky actually said this that there's a way of listening to music where it kind of hits you and you experience it. And um, that leads to it, some engagement, some, some creativity, some development, some thoughts, right? Whether they're, whether it's uh, trying to think about things or whether it's trying to feel things or making sense out of the music, uh, what have you, right? In the same way we kind of do that in literature, right? Um, you know, we try to make, try to understand the text, but we also talk about uh, the engagement we have with the character, the, the way that a character seems to be one you, uh, that the author wants you to, to relate with. You know, there's certain like uh, value judgments placed on the, um, the characters by the author, by the narrator, or maybe by us. doesn't always have to be the author. Um, and so all that said, right, that plays into what we're we're dealing with in an artistic sense. Uh, but we can also see that in something like a discourse on law or something like a conversation with a friend, right? Where we're talking with one another through language and we're, we're using that medium as a way of um, developing a relationship and uh, sharing things, right? Whether it's sharing criticism, or something more enjoyable like uh, sharing the plans to get ice cream, which is always what I want to do with my friends. But uh, that being said, um, there's this way language is an in between for us, right? It's me think about, I don't know if it would be interesting to everyone, but I'm wondering if it would be interesting to think about the different characters we have read in these texts and what we think of those characters, maybe. Like, I'm text that I remember most and I enjoyed the most was Blancho because uh, the character um, of used this confusion of a unity of a self, right? Um, whereas um, uh, in other texts, every character sort of holds both uh, uh, content in terms of what they're seeing or what they're thinking, but uh, <laughs> but also. Uh, the fact of let's say the the character in um, Kafka's uh, penal colony um, uh, who's who's uh, passionately 
you know, sort of really, really uh, faithful to the machine. He's an interesting character because he's living in a in a world of a specific kind of language, uh, and he's he's um, constituted by that machine in some ways. Uh, uh, so I was just wondering if it would be interesting to look at the different characters that we walk through also and how we can see uh, uh, language uh, playing out in relation to their identities as characters. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Let's go, let's talk about the texts we've read and the way language plays into that. Um, and I'll say for my part too, like, I really like the way Borges plays with language in the sense of um, in the sense of having the Aleph as the letter, having the Aleph as the symbol, and even having the Aleph as the sort of like um, this sort of sacred uh, element that we almost have to question when we, right, is it, is it the point that we can see that contains all points? Or is it a point hidden, not even a point, right? Is it a humming hid within um, a pillar in, inside of a ruin? Right, that's, at that level, I think it's sometimes how I feel about language too, is that uh, the sense that the, the total structure of language even in the English language, is something of a, a ruins of other languages, um, but also in the sense that whatever that, if there is that kind of um, deeper meaning, if there is that kind of um, sense of something um, within the story that um, you know isn't just a theme, but something a little bit more. Um, impacting something a little bit more intense. I think he's right to say that it does come from this sort of silence and almost hearing a faint humming uh, within the text or within something somebody says to you quite often. Where else do we see language in some of these texts, right? We've talked a lot about Borges um, and um, Rancho and Kafka, um, and we can still talk about them for sure. Um, where do we see it in, in those texts, or in Blake, or in Artaud? I guess Artaud is a great example. You know, the whole idea of the theater of cruelty. Um, again, in my my meager understanding, that you know, it, it, it was funny because I originally read the play just as a text, just reading it. And then when I heard it performed, it, it was such a different experience. But from my understanding that, you know, that was part of what it was for uh, Arto, who's, I guess, looking to displace the idea of this, like, that word I was trying to use, or architectonic author who determines meaning and then orchestrates the, you know, the actors and the people on stage to then enact that meaning. And it's sort of just a, a neat equation. You know, and he said that thing about the, the people who produce the play in themselves should have a higher name on the bill than the, than the writer who they're going to wrote the play. Um, but that the theater of cruelty, again, from my understanding, there was a thing about like you know, the way he pronounced words and you know shouting suddenly and kind of going through all these different intensive states, you might call them, in that Toulousian style, like uh, that was supposed to produce maybe Jackie, as you seem to know better than I do, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're supposed to kind of produce 
again, produce an effect in the viewer, in the person watching the play, and I guess maybe shock them or ha- like have the experience displace both the performer and the viewer from their kind of like uh, you know typical experience of language and meaning. Um, a, a lot of the time, because he would just you know in the text we read the to be what is it to dumb with the judgment of God. You know, there's a lot of made-up language as well. There's and there's phrases that resemble some kind of language, but it's unclear if they are or aren't. You know, so. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That there's in our toe, there's the text that's written out, and then there's the actual performance of it. Uh, which, which is all a theater, right? Like, uh, you know, Shakespeare didn't just write scripts. He, he wrote performances of scripts. He wrote performances of plays. Um, but you're right that performing Romeo and Juliet does not go so far as Artaud performing to have done with the judgment of God, where there's the spontaneity of a drum solo, the spontaneity of a xylophone, the spontaneity of glossalia or the speaking in, in um, I would call it like pre-verbal language, but language that's not really uh, working in terms of words per se, but is, is doing something way different. Um, and I'll say too, um, yeah, I think with the theater of cruelty, the way I, I think of it is the cruelty for our toe is something to the effect of the theater being the space for this sort of spontaneity of performance, but also this um, this almost transmission of a play, of a text, but also of its performing that goes so far as to, you know, sort of um, sort of directly interrelate with the audience. So as opposed to making a play for the audience to view in this way, the play is going, or not even the play per se, but um, at least in the theater of cruelty, the plays are going to go so far as to directly try to interrelate and um, and almost subject um, or bring the, the, the audience in as a subjective element and sort of, um, I mean, like the, the notion of cruelty, right? Uh, comes in at this level of breaking people out of that kind of molding uh, of in, in introducing a kind of suffering where something like a play isn't just written for pleasure. Um, and that might sound normal today, but for a long time, uh, something like a play or you know something uh, literary, uh, and this comes up in T.S. Eliot for an easy example, right? T.S. Eliot's supposed to rewrite Homer or something, right? And instead he writes J. Alfred Proofrock, where it's, um, the character says, no, I'm no Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. I'm an attendant lord and advisor to the king, right? It's this way of, um, and it's not quite the theater of cruelty, but you can see it's this way of sort of transgressing um these sort of um sort of form as a perimeter in that and the audience um expectation of a certain of a certain form and of a certain content. Yeah. 
to, um, since you bring up Arto, what was your experience listening to the piece? Because um, I, I completely agree with you that the performance of the piece is way different than, um, especially when Arto performs it, than the actual reading of it. I didn't see the. I, I didn't watch that English version. I wonder how that was different. The, the French version. I think maybe just it doesn't help that I don't speak French, so it, it was sort of I had to make those connections in my mind as I was reading the script. But you know, he he's, he is quite good at making you feel uncomfortable because some of the some of the shouts and the way he pronounces words are extremely off-putting. And I think I don't want to be. Um, what do they say here in the UK? A madam about it. I don't want to be you know overly picky, but. So I think I, if I reread it or re-listened to it, I might feel differently. I remember at the time I was really struggling to focus, um, but maybe that's the point. <laughs> yeah, and so in terms of language, um, what can we say about that performance? And, and then I'll stop picking on Yaliosha. <laughs> oh, are you asking me directly? Yes. Christ, I mean <laughs> that performance. Uh, I mean, it, it's 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 a roller coaster. It's a harrowing experience because he goes from quiet whispers to shouting to kind of like, from what I remember, singing, sort of half singing, you know, clanging. Um, it's a, it's kind of desperate, and I guess knowing what we know about this point in Arto's life, when he wrote that piece, you know, it's kind of towards the end of his life when he's fully, uh, I guess, embraced some of the, well, I guess, what we call schizophrenic tendencies. So, um, yeah, it's 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 quite intense. It's just an intense experience to be to use a bland word. Yeah, but it all takes place, or at least a lot of it, incorporates language, right? The reason I point that out is because we've talked about some of the limits of language um, and, and what comes with it. But right, like Alyosha is saying, our, our toast to have done with the judgment of God um, still works with language and still develops um, an experience that is not only very unique for the listener, um, but is also very spontaneous, um, even though it has a touch dwell, and even though it does have some writing involved um, beforehand. But it also has this sort of like, you know, like he's right, or I'm sorry, they're right. It does make you feel uncomfortable at many elements. And if you read the, the test, right, like, the beginning of the text and just in terms of um, children having their sperm harvest that is extremely uncomfortable you know especially like you, you know you think 1940s who's who's writing about sperm and for some reason Arto is but um, that comes up in other places in his work but uh, nonetheless it, it does have this power of um, of language providing that sort of experience that I think Blake was talking about too, when he says that um, there's this interest in helping people experience something uh, transcendental, or at least experience something 
um, that they call the, the, the sort of perception of the infinite. Experienced uh, listening to the the play uh, being performed uh, more as a sensory experience, which was over and above just reading the text, which remains an intellectual experience, even though Dartford um, in, in in both his plays that I read still a significantly sensory experience because he's calling out to those experiences. But when you're listening to it, there is sound involved over and above the world, uh, which does something to the experience of, uh, of engaging with it. And then um, I would imagine if you're actually physically there, there is, there, is a, there is a lot more sensory richness to theatrical performance in that sense, that you're present in your body, you're experiencing it with with vision, with sound, with touch, um, and, and that changes the experience of uh, how you would feel if you were to just read uh, the text. Yeah, I agree. And it, it plays into the interpretation, right? Because um, when we did our piece on judgment, um, we focused on the text. But one thing we talked about there was like, and unfortunately, I don't I don't think any of us speak French, or if anyone spoke, does speak French on the server, they weren't there that day. Um, but there, at that level, the, the test is doing something different than the performances. Um, one way of thinking about it, too, is it, and I think this is common in the acting world more so than like, um, writing the book because when you write the book it's only through the reading that you can still improv right having having written the book the imp improvisation is over but i think that's something that musicians um actors and people who are speaking a piece can actually do is that level of improvisation or the, the spontaneity of something can lead to um a sense of what's what's right about doing it a certain way, right? Like artists will say, I just thought it was cool to include um, this aspect here, but there's also like, there's a way that it enhances the piece or changes the piece or, you know, it, it, it does something really interesting that they otherwise weren't starting with the intention of doing, right? It happens during the process um, as one of Alyosha's quotes talks about. Arto also in his. So did I cut someone out? Okay, okay. Uh, Arto uh, talks about in his book Theater in Stable and Critique Psychology. They're saying that it reduces unknown to known. I thought that was interesting, and I thought this might be why he chose the word theater of cruelty way of doing theater and maybe this can also be uh, relevant to our critique of language as well reducing the unknown to now uh, they're not there i think um i think you uh, are next yeah, I'm, I was just making a somewhat tangential point, uh, which just occurred to me. Um, when you look at uh, debates in uh, artificial intelligence, uh, it started with trying to make sense of how the mind works. 
And and when you uh, look at how we arrive at embodied cognition, I think uh, what's interesting is that uh, quite a lot of work in artificial intelligence uh, is now confronting the fact that uh, manners in which we uh, receive uh, information, so to say, uh, is not uh, uh, linguistic in the sense of the word or information, but as as we experience it in the senses. So the brain and the vat that we start with in those uh, particular discourses sort of fails to actually make sense of what it is to be human or what is is be uh, um, to to be thinking like the human being does. It's it's somewhat tangential, but the, the the contrast of when we approach language as just an intellectual process of reading and analyzing, as opposed to um, uh, you know what uh, uh, theater does for us uh, in our embodied uh, forms to us. Yeah, and I think what you're getting at is this theme, too, that we're talking about where um, we've got our criticisms with language for sure. But it sounds like what you're also saying is that um, our engagement with language isn't just signifiers, right? Um, Or to say it differently, um, and, and Blake and Borges are phenomenal examples of this because of Blade's illustrative method, but also um, uh, the way the Aleph leads into something like a sign, something like a word, something, or not a word, something like a, a letter, a phonetic, ephemeral thing we say, and also something where there's something much more profound about it. And, and kind of what I'm, I'm hearing you say there and out there, at least what, what I was thinking about when you're speaking, is that um throughout these texts i think too we can say that the engagement with language is often about um moving past those limits but also allowing for an experience of something that maybe it's represented maybe it's not but something that is um expressed and communicated throughout these these texts right with Borges you don't you know you, you don't necessarily um, get a representation of love but you do have a lot to think about in terms of watching this this character especially after you find out that um, Borges is going to lend his last name to uh, a character watching this character go through um an obsession, go through a, um, you know, all these different means of trying to to strike up a relationship of um, a genuine sadness at losing someone that um, he does want to have this profound relationship with, right? So there's this way that language, I think, is in between us, um, as we said, but it's also this way that it sort of maybe acts, um, I mean, like a medium, but something um, that language acts as a way of giving expression um, to experiences, to 
levels of um, profundity or even to just something as common as um, ice cream, that it's still, um, it's got this expressive um, aspect. Uh, yeah, Alyosha, when I say it's in between us, I mean like, um, I think I said this earlier. Um, so without language, it would be extremely difficult to communicate. That is to say, like, yes, there is looking into somebody's eyes. And that said, um, there's feelings with all that. Um, but you can't really go beyond that without language to, um, in a large way. Yeah, I have an effect on people with ice cream. Uh, that, um, and so I'm getting this from uh, Alyosha. There's a scholar I like named Greg Salyer with a Y, and he makes the point that without language, there's not really a whole lot in between you and me. It's our way of connecting with one another. And it doesn't mean it's the totality of connection. It doesn't mean it's where the connective um, aspect of a relationship in any sense begins and ends. But I think it does mean that communication is a way of having a relationship and that language is ultimately at least a significantly overwhelming part of any relationship of any um, of any interest in expressing oneself. This is interesting because I think my role right now is really to just be the contrarian scrub because I, I don't think I have the philosophical sort of like uh, background to be able to like contest these things properly. But, you know, I, I think about, you know, if you think about limit cases, I think it's often, I think one thing we do do in philosophy when we engage in it is we sort of realize how the limit cases aren't really limit cases and they help you sort of understand, you know, from the margins, you can understand sort of the pr premises or the, the pretenses of the supposed like, you know, mainstream or, or normal conception of something. So you say about language, I mean, if you give an example of uh, two, for example, uh, mute or, or deaf people, you know, and then obviously the response might be, well, no, but there is a kind of language that's through, uh, you know, spoken uh, sign language and things like that. But I think you can keep taking it further and further of like, you know, to me, the literary and artistic point would almost be that, you know, in a way, you're right that language is indispensable, but then also like yeah. that there is something about uh, a kind of unspoken understanding between two people is is a way. You know, there could be an aspect of language and communication to that, or even if you talk about dance or other physical forms of it, when we talk about music, I, I suppose we can just say all of these things are language, and that kind of solves that problem. Um, but I guess my my contrarian sort of like fake homo instinct here is to always say like when we say things like language is a bridge between us like i wonder if and i'm just thinking out loud here i wonder if that gives us too much of a you know again i wonder if that falls too much into the kind of neatly formed categories thing that we're trying to avoid so like the idea of a bridge kind of implies two and, and a point a and point b that are kind of self-contained and we're just linking them up which i think uh, maybe it's something that a lot of these stories and a lot of what we try and discuss here on the server is, is trying to problematize in that, like, you know, it's not that there's two already sort of, uh, you know, preformed uh, subjects that just need to communicate some meaning to each other, but that kind of the entire process 
uh, is, or, or maybe even if you talk about in terms of flows, you know, there's there's, an, there's a flow of meanings and signifiers without necessarily any specific signified, and these things get cordoned off, and so we, we become these <laughs> subjects that think we need to have bridges between each other. When I feel like what the, the game of art and language is always t- like sort of building it up in order to break itself back down, you know, to realize the that that what is the word Bataille uses, like the infinitude, the thing that is always between us, that always links us, even in spite of ourselves, that it's always there. So, you know, again, I'm sorry if I'm being pedantic here, but I'm just thinking, is language, it, should we think of it as a bridge versus, um, I don't know if, if there's another sort of analogy we can think of. Yeah, I, I appreciate the criticism because, like I said, right, there's still looking into somebody's eyes. There's still the act of touch. There's still a way there's things between us besides um, language. But I would also maintain still that uh, without language, um, communication does reach a certain limit really quickly. I mean... Uh... I think we cannot say that language is a bridge, but it is not only a bridge. Like if we can maybe take a snapshot in time, then yes, the use of language is uh, be uh, similar to a bridge in some points in those snap- snapshots. But another point, and even if we get back to that time, it changes its, its uh, function. But I think this can be all rather than. If we try to identify and say that if it is bri- if it is that or not, like I think this is the wrong type of question. Like I think it is that, and but so many things as well. Yeah, I think what helped me articulate what I was trying to say is what the word you now when you said besides language, and I guess what I'm trying to think in my head is maybe that is what I'm saying that. Is there is there something besides language? So to sort of cordon certain things off and say, no, this is language. It's sort of like the old linguistic fallacy where they, you know, linguists say, okay, what is a word? And then, you know, it, it seems so obvious, but there's like, you can actually have that debate until the end of time because it is really hard to pin down what, what the word word means because it's so distinct in so many different contexts and different cultures and philosophical ideas and whatever. So I guess what I'm saying is, are we making a mistake by thinking? Uh, maybe I would I'd love to read. Maybe if you can send over some of that that uh, thinkers, you know, pieces. But I wonder, are we making a mistake by thinking of things besides language or outside of language? Because I think maybe the, the post-structuralist turn would be to say, well, there isn't anything outside language. Not to say that everything is words, but we're actually maybe the reverse. We're doing a disservice to language by thinking of it as words, and that words are one way of language being expressed or communication happening but that there's you know there's an infinite number of ways it can happen and we kind of like back project in our highly literate society from the image of a word on a piece of paper into our concept of language and think that is what language is but uh yeah i guess that that's kind of where i'm getting at with that and i think some of these authors would you know, maybe maybe would kind of uh, be playing with as well. You know, can you can you escape language and not even necessarily as a pessimistic thing either? Like, oh, we're stuck. But like, what does it mean to play with that contradiction? Because to me, that would that would be life itself. You know, that there's there's nothing you can't do but play with it. You know. 
Yeah, I personally don't think you can get away from language. And um, if we think back, right, like there's oral cultures and there's literary cultures and there's cultures where, you know, electronic media has become the new place for language. Um, or we look at Plato, right, the need to replace muthos or storytelling with uh, logos or rationality. Um with different ways of engaging language. Uh, we also can see Plato struggling with how do you get past writing things down um, instead of speaking them, right? And that's the, um, hmm, I cannot think of the dialogue right now. It starts with the P, it's not the Parmenides, it's the, um, but anyways, uh, so to get to the point, um, yeah, I think you're right for the, well, I, I guess I'm trying to follow you here because like, I still don't think language is the totality of things, but I do think it's probably the medium uh, of communication in a very general sense. And so if, if you're going to say that language, um, is, it's it almost not like you were saying language is a sort of totality through which we, we understand things and, and engage them um if that's the case i'm not sure i understand what you mean besides language right um could you expand on that's, that? that's what i meant that was the word you used that's why i was jumping on that is that i don't know if i would agree that there is such a thing as besides language and that I, I guess that's what i'm saying is like i'm thinking about the simondon we've been reading as well that thing about individuation the pre-individual, all these fancy, again, fancy ideas, but it's sort of like we get stuck in these ways of talking about things of like signifier, signified, uh, you know, speaker and receiver, you know, performer, listener, you know, all these models of language kind of, they're very, if you think about them, maybe they can appear active, but I feel like they're kind of passive and they imply a kind of passivity rather than a kind of co-creation that every act of articulation is always a co-creation, you know, because I guess I, I think I remember what was this guy's name? Um, pleasure of the text, uh, Bart, you know, like people talking about, you know, the idea, it's not just you write a text and then an audience reads it. There is a kind of audience already in the text, in the way, in, in the writing, you know, the writer concedes of a reader and is reacting, responding, and sort of being seen by a reader, even as they're writing it, because the, yeah, that, that's that's what the act of writing is. So, you know, I'm thinking about just again. I know I'm being pedantic. I'm sorry if I'm taking this off. Stop me, guys, if I am. I'm just thinking when we speak of things like a bridge or communication, it sort of seems to serve as this idea of of like reifying the separation between us rather than sort of looking at it as, as maybe in a different way of, uh, you know, okay, rather than a bridge, you know, is it something that is sort of co-articulated in both the speaker and the listener at the same time? You know, they both, if it is a bridge, it's, it's a bridge in both of their heads. And so there's two bridges and they're both thinking of them and they're both simultaneously translating them as this image. You know, again, I'm getting, I'm getting ridiculous here, but I'm saying, you know, it just it just seems too easy to say. It sounds like a tool then, the Tupperware thing you said. This is like I put this in between us and then this helps us understand each other. You know, and maybe my 
contrarian instinct is getting the best of me right now. But I feel there's something there that is problematic. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting critique because I, I do think he's right to say language is between us. And it's a way of, like I said, I'm not using the word bridge because I think um, uh, when someone says the word bridge, to me, that's, they're speaking about metaphor. And this might be my pedantic side, but uh, etymologically, the word metaphor is more about creating a bridge and, and trying to, you know, like uh, when you use a, a metaphor, you're trying to bridge um, two points, right? The point of you're trying to make um, with a, with some way of um, connecting it to something that people can kind of cross through understanding. But uh, when, when I'm what I'm trying to get at is something more like when I say language is in between us, I mean to say that um, what we're doing with words allows us to develop these sort of relationships um, through communication at that level. But again, I also agree with you that, you know, language is speaking is an act, right? There's still actions, there's still the experience, there's still the level of interpretation. The engagement with language is not the totality um, of how we connect with one another, but it is an important aspect of developing a relationship. Or like I said too, um, Borges' depiction of love in, in the Aleph is still not, you know, it's not necessarily um, how you will love or um, how the person in San Francisco is loving right now. Begum, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, uh, I was going to say something related to Borges as well. So I remember the character Carlos Argentino, it's his name. But, uh, the way he used the um, language versus Borges was trying to do with language was real different. And I think we can see there that um, language uh, as words. And you put them together, like what makes it poetry or like makes it in a way aesthetic. I think maybe uh, we can talk about aesthetic here as well, because it kind of shows uh, if that affects you or not, whether like if you are depicting the earth and then um, because you use good analogies, you think that you're done a good job, but it doesn't come up that way. and. And we can ask what is that that uh, gives us this impression or like excite us? What excites us in a written language? Maybe can be the question because and we can say that this two still contains the same words, consists the same words, but they don't affect me the same. So there is another thing here that I cannot really identify. It makes something. Uh, Hurt more for us than the other. Yeah, I, I think you're right because um, when we do read these texts, right, like, and we see like a, a word like a pillar, um, that'll engage us differently, right? Um, and likewise, when we're having this conversation, you know, there is a 
an aspect to each of us uh, listening that um, is at an individual level, right? Um, whatever our context socially or culturally, you know, there's um, the element of our memory playing into our interpretation, but also into what we're going to create. Um, having listened to language, having heard the person speak. Uh, I was reminded of the light prism uh, in the chat for because um, uh, I thought that um, you know, language gets you somewhere, it presents you with some words, and the author has an intention on doing so. So the author goes from maybe a more linear way, but when you are represented with that word, um, you you take so many. Uh, it's like the light shatters and creates the colors, and you in, interpret it in million ways. So as uh, because you you are looking at it from a different different uh, way, so you're looking at it from a different perspective. Uh, I think uh, what language does in a sense that it uh, makes you confront something and we can probably uh, apply it to all sort of languages like body language or something that is like uh, non we cannot say with words but it is still a language if we think about it in a medium or like in a plane like the platform that it creates it is we can t say that it is a language as well. So it makes us confront something, and maybe this is what makes it uh, maybe more like art than just a couple of sentences because this confrontation is like reminds me of our thought theater of cruelty, where he says that cruelty is in your consciousness. And what he tries to say, do is that um, makes us. Sense, sense, poetry of senses. He says that makes us confront something, like not show us symbols or like make us understand something, not reducing the unknown to known. Because then he says how he gets there. He will show us that linear way of reaching that light prism. Whereas we should just confront it with the light prism beforehand, before seeing the uh, uh, paths the author takes and then interpret it in our own way. I don't know if that, this is what I thought about it in related to all this conversation. Yeah, I think you're right though. The method of interpretation or the, the, the way we can interpret does give us a, a, an immense um, potentiality of how to engage language, how to engage communication. Um, but also how to engage things like events, um, how to engage our actions, right? Just to clarify, I, I hope I'm not coming off as saying that language is all that we are. I mean to say that language is very much uh, integral communication. But like I said, I still think there's things like emotions and that that you know, like the, the feeling of sadness isn't just um, uh, a, a lexical unit, right? There's still feelings. Um, it still has something experiential there.
think uh, that's the uh, that's that's the significant purpose of uh, problematizing language, which is that uh, when we think of the feeling of sadness and uh, we think of it as being outside of language, uh, and and when we place a meaning as as something that resides in language and not outside of it so there are there are these two ways of approaching it which is that which is what alyosha was talking about earlier which is that either we think of language as this all encompassing thing which consumes the feeling of sadness and then the the, the utterance of sadness let's say if i howl in pain and i'm stabbed with a knife um, i either uh, expand language to to include those forms of um, being an expression, or I, I, I think of language as this specific kind of thing, and then try to understand what lies outside of it uh, in 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 terms of what in terms of who we are. Uh, are we just language, or are we all of these other things? Which is also, I think, a kind of trickery of language itself. Those are excellent points. Um, uh, Alyosha, did you want to make a comment to that? I think I think I've lost the plot, so <laughs> don't worry about me. I, I think I'm thinking about this question of. I think you're right that, uh, in a conventional sense, that you're, there are these pre-linguistic things that happen to us and that are directly experiential in a way. Then I also wonder. I didn't know that. You know, we're talking about language games. I wonder if that whole way of speaking about it itself is a language game because you're you're sort of saying, "Oh, this is a, again." You're talking about an outside. You're using language to talk about an outside of language. And you know, I, again, I don't think I'm qualified to answer that question, but it just makes me think about maybe if we're not using the conventional sense of language, but in that, you know, it, it, I guess is it's one of those. It borders the line between analytic and continental philosophy here, of like. You know, is is there a form of thinking that is non-linguistic? I think an analytical approach, which borders on sort of delusion, the pure logic approach, is sort of convinced, and that you could even say that early Wittgenstein is is kind of convinced of a purity of a kind of of a, an experience of language that you can understand things through. But I don't know if I mean it in that way. I guess I'm just saying it goes back to the unmediated thing. I guess if my my basic point is that there is no unmediated experience of the world. And so to think, I worry that by talking about things as if there are certain things that are unmediated, then we sort of end up creating that very problem that we're trying to solve. And if I, if in my mind, it, it always is mediated, not in a cynical sense, I think it's something you can undermine and play with. But if it always is mediated on some level, then begs the question, by what? And, you know, I suppose you could say perception or other kinds of things. But I... You know, I think there must be a non-analytical way of talking about in that it is the sort of it is the way that we are able to think. You know, and and while while it's made up sort of like we talk about the design machines and the body without, you know, the the body without organs, the the subject that comes out of to being in all that, you can certainly think about all these things, but you cannot think from the perspective of your designing machines you know it's 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 an impossibility because of the question of scale so i guess that's what i'm saying like at the scale of the kind of experience that we feel, we go through as so-called subjects does it even make sense to talk about things that are you know we, we can think talk about them or experience them in a non-linguistic way 
because to me, I don't think about words on a page when I'm saying that. Um, but anyway, I'm just rambling, so we can get someone who knows the, the philosophy better than me to jump in there. Um, they're not there. I think you had a comment. No, I just uh, unmuted uh, mistake. But I was when Alicia was talking about, I was thinking about the, the word pre uh, so pre linguistic that they've mentioned in the chat. And then I was thinking about so when we uh, so there's pre linguistic and then there is also pre theoretical. Uh, for Heidegger, uh, at least pre theoretical. Uh, is is when we do not when we're not ontology and we're, we're not doing an ontology of being when we're just being in that everyday being also we're using language but we're not using language in a theoretical sense so uh, when when you're talking about language as communication or language as uh, making sense of things or uh, as Beacon was talking about uh, body language whereas like so I think of I'm thinking of a child so a child goes up in the world observing and that observation of things. And then from there, the child sort of draws its directives on how to be. So um, I think there is there is also that distinction between theoretical and pre-theoretical modes of being. And in that pre, and, and I'm thinking of language uh, in, in those differences, that there is a theoretical mode of using language and then there is a pre-theoretical mode also. And then before that, I'm... I'm trying to make sense of what do I understand um, to be pre-linguistic. I took uh, pre-linguistic as to be that which has not yet been put into words. Um, is, is that what you meant by pre-linguistic um, Alyosha? I, I guess... If, if there's any coherency in what I'm trying to say, I, I think what I was trying to argue is I don't think that there is such a thing, but in a, in a commonsensical way, I do agree with you that you need to problematize the idea of, you know, I guess the kind of the dictionary approach to language that, you know, language is what's in a dictionary. And so there can't be anything else. I don't think that's what I'm getting at. And I think a commonsensical kind of way you could say, no, 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 there's all pre-linguistic things that you experience that are just, you know, the raw experience of life and emotion and divine, divine revelation, whatever it is. I guess what I'm trying to say is that that might work on one level. Does it work on all levels is what I'm asking. And I'm, I'm saying not in a fatalistic sense and not that it's completely totalizing and that it isn't riddled with holes and problematic and falling on itself and all that good stuff, but just that can we even talk about a pre-linguistic is, is that's what I was actually trying to get at. Oh, Okay, it's starting to click with me better now. I think it won't answer the question, but uh, I, I like to think that maybe uh, when we um, read the story of Aleph, if we could add like one sentence to do to another, like if we could add all of that, it, it would create an Aleph. For example, um, if we like, let me talk. Uh, talk about poetic genius, for example. Um, it first gives us a shape, and th when this shape unfolds, it creates these uh, linear languages. I like to think of it in that way because sometimes a um, uh, concept comes to you, like 
organized, but not in a way that it that is through linear language. And then you have to articulate on what you are what you're trying to say, what you what you think, and it is an image in your head, and then you try to unfold it to this linear um, concepts you use like language or like sentences. And I like to think that if if it is like starts and finish it starts and finish a story finishes and then another starts and sometimes we cannot see the start and the end of it and then through the sets of those stories and other things emerge i think and if we could like add those together they would create something that is uh behind um uh, the language i guess like I wanted to uh, see the relevance of pictures to the sentences because maybe this is how I think uh, in some way. Like I, I sometimes think in shapes and then these create languages and then these create sentences. I like to see that is the unfold version of that shape. That's really interesting. Though. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us more about um, uh, how you think about things too and how um, kind of what that visual level of that, that thinking is like. Um, I'll see Alyosha, um, in terms of the pre-linguistic, this is one reason I'm really interested in somebody like Foucault, because I think Foucault recognizes that the way we talk about things and the way that a discourse even and especially now in the sense of a dictionary, a, a dictionary idea of language, um, or um, a simple lexical nature of grammar, where grammar is just a way that sentences make sense. Um, that discourse doesn't necessarily end or begin at the um, the sense of the word "cat" as a dictionary defines it, but as we're using it in a discourse to talk about something how things can be problematized through that discourse, how things are um, discussed, depicted, um, excluded and included. I think those are all extremely important and play into the, if language is in between us at that level, um, that level of discourse analysis becomes indispensable because in a lot of ways that is creating a world, right? Um, a world we participate in um, and may not even have much of a voice in that discourse, um, which I I think goes um, take on that would probably be that we often have very little voice. Um, more often, we're probably listening if we're even in, um, privileged enough to be in the discourse to listen. But yeah, I... I agree with you that language is intimately caught up in what we're we're doing with um, the world and how we're engaging it. I think it too long since we've talked about reading theorists. Um, I've been interested to read um, Bakhtin and his uh, sort of philosophy of the action because I do think the action it's going to get, it's going to enter a discourse, but the action also seems to. Yes, Mikhail Bakhtin, that's right. Um, also seems to exist not in a, a linguistic sense, or at least in, in a sense that it's not um, 
it's something excuse me it's something that we we can share without necessarily putting the words all together well we have reached our two hour mark but i think this is an interesting place to stop because um this definitely i think will give us a lot to think about in terms of language and in terms of um what we try to do with language in terms of whatever we're experiencing, feeling, doing, or the events we're participating in, what the, the role of language is with those um, those things. So with that, does anybody have um, any closing remarks, thoughts, or even some questions about um, our last uh, two hours during this round table. No, right, that sounds like a no. So um, we'll go right into the close. Thank you all for being here with us uh, for our first round table and hopefully not the last. Um, I think this will definitely leave us with some interesting questions as we move into reading more texts and um, as we reflect on the ones we've read. For next Saturday, we'll be reading. I gotta try not to screw up the name because I always confuse it with Hieronymus Bosch's painting. Uh, we'll be reading a text by Borges. And if you give me one moment, I can look up the name. There we go. I always want to say the Garden of Earthly Delights, but no. We will be reading Borges' The Garden of Forking Paths for next Saturday. And uh, I believe we will provide a PDF. And so please join us for our upcoming discussion and be a part of our ongoing conversation. <laughs>